0: Father, this morning as a church, we just wanna come before you, Lord, with boldness. Because Hebrews tells us, God, that we can approach your throne without fear. We can approach your throne with boldness because Christ has redeemed us, reconciled us to yourselves, made us your children, Lord. So, Lord, we have whatever access to you that we want. And Lord, we praise you for that. So we come before you, Lord, this morning and we ask that as we read your scriptures this morning, as we study together, as we worship together, that Lord, you would do a work in our hearts. That you would encourage us, you would build up our faith, that we would leave here this morning more in love with you. Lord, we wanna take a minute we just wanna Pray for our nation as just had a really tough week. A lot of violence. Lord, as we saw yesterday, the shooting at a Jewish synagogue that took 11 lives, Lord, we have no words to say other than, Lord, why does this happen? And we long for you to return and put an end to such sin and senseless violence. Lord, we pray for our friends who are Jewish who have a lot of grief today and a lot of fear. Pray for my friend, Rabbi Holtzman of the Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation. Speaking to him yesterday, Lord, I, I know that he is grieving and is Lord, as he tries to lead his congregation into trying to process these senseless acts of violence, we pray for them, Lord, and we ask that your comfort would be with them. Father, we pray that as a church, that, Lord, we, as followers of Christ, as those who've been a recipient of your love and your compassion, even when we did not deserve it, Even, Lord, as the scripture says, even when we were your enemy, you stepped into this world and you loved us and you gave your life for us. And Lord, you tell us that that is the very definition of love. And so, Lord, I pray as the church of Jesus Christ that we would be a model in this world of what it means to love those who don't deserve it, to love those whom we disagree with, to love those, Lord, who maybe don't love us back. I pray, Lord, that we would be such a light in our world. And I pray, Lord, as we talk about this very subject this morning, that you would help us to fully comprehend the depths of your compassion for us in such a way that we can't help but extend that same compassion to the people we encounter every single day. Help us in that, Lord, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. So as I just prayed, it was a really hard week in our country. Seems like the news every day is unending. I mean, we saw senseless violence in what seems to be inspired by all of this just heightened rhetoric and divisiveness in our country. So on Wednesday, a man, after failing to barge into an African-American church, decided to go to a Kroger and shoot two random African-Americans. On all week, the nation dealt with what seemed to be attempted assassination of various officials, representatives of the Democratic Party. Yesterday, we saw 11 people shot attending a Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh. I mean, what causes this? I mean, when it comes to politics in our country, statistics are beginning to show us that Americans are moving towards the extremes of the political divide more than ever before. I was uh, reading an article about this by one of my favorite columnists in the New York Times, David Brooks, and he was writing on this and he was comparing the politics of the two extreme sides. The, he, he calls the extreme of the left the progressive activists and the extreme of the right the devotive conservatives and, and this is what he says. He says the philosophical dispute between the two, it's not new, that, the philo- philosophical dispute is not new. What is new is how cultish this dispute has become. Researchers asked a wide variety of questions on everything from child rearing to national anthem protests. And in many cases, look at this, 97 to 99% of progressive activists said one thing and 93 to 95% of uh, devoted to conservatives said the opposite. There's little evidence of individual thought, just cult conformity. Uh, the observation that David Brooks is making here is that we are becoming more divided as a nation because more and more people are only listening and interacting with people who share their worldview. We, we exist in echo chambers. And, and there's a lot more effort being put towards belittling the other side versus listening, understanding someone else's opinion or worldview. And in this context, there are going to be certain deranged individuals who will turn Evil and violence. You know, it takes a good measure of humility and love of others to care more about hearing what other people have to say than broadcasting what what I want to say. And I think this is why our nation is stuck. It's not a problem just in Washington, I think it's a, a problem in humanity. Uh, Humanity defaults to self-focus, having more of a compassion on myself and my needs and less of a compassion on others. That's what we just call the sin condition of humanity. And unity between people can only be achieved when we step away from our self-focus and we actually have more compassion on others than we would ourselves. And as we continue in our study in the book of Jonah, this is what I want to talk about. How do we as followers of Jesus Christ step away from the temptation that we all have, every one of us, towards self-focus and begin to build a compassion for others that become that comes before ourselves? And I'm not talking about this because it's of political importance. I'm actually talking about this because I think this is mission critical for the church. Uh, God very clearly has said in, in 2 Corinthians 5 that his church and his children are ambassadors. We are citizens of the kingdom of God with a message of salvation for the people of this world. And so God has established little embassies across the entire globe called the local church. He has gathered his ambassadors in those embassies and he's given them a mission to go and spread the good news of Jesus Christ to all, all nations across the whole world. But nothing will threaten the success of our mission more than a heart of self-focus and a compassion for ourselves more than for others. And we see this in the final verses of the book of Jonah. So I wanna look at that again, that uh, last part of chapter four in the book of Jonah. Let me set up the story for you again one more time so we're all caught up. The beginning of the book God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh in the great empire of Assyria and I want you to preach against it. Well, Jonah hated the Ninevites and so Jonah decides to flee the opposite direction, get on a ship and, and disobey God. But the problem with that is God is the sovereign, almighty one. So Jonah deals with a big storm, takes a little ride in a big fish and eventually gets redirected back toward Nineveh and he decides himself, that he's going to obey God's call on his life to go preach to the city. So Jonah goes, he preaches to the city. Miraculously, everyone in the city repents and they're saved, and God decides not to judge and destroy the city like he had said he was going to do. Seems like good news, but this made Jonah very angry. Because even though Nineveh repents of their sin, Jonah still believes they deserve to be harshly punished and that God should destroy them. That's where Jonah's at. So that's where we're gonna pick up the story. So look at Jonah chapter four, verse five. It says, Jonah left the city after they all got saved and and, uh, Jonah was angry at God because God was merciful. Jonah left the city and found a place east of it He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. So picture Jonah, angry and bitter that God didn't destroy the city, but he still had hope that maybe God still would. So he goes and he finds a spot that he can go watch the city. He scraps together some leaves and twigs and builds himself this little shelter, I guess, to protect him from the sun and he's sitting there in his little shelter. You can kind of imagine him munching popcorn, waiting to see what's going to happen, hoping that maybe God will change his mind and decide not to be merciful. Verse six Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. So apparently the shelter Jonah built wasn't doing any good to protect him from the sun. So God thought, well, this would be a good opportunity to teach Jonah a little lesson and all of us a lesson. So he lets this plant grow over him to provide him the shade that he needs. Back in verse seven, when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, "It's better for me to die than to live." Then Jonah asked, I mean, sorry. Then God asked Jonah, "Is it right for you to be angry about the plant?" "Yes, it's right," he replied. "I'm angry enough to die." So the Lord said, "You cared about the plant?" which you did not labor over and did not grow it appeared in a night and perished in a night but may i not care about the great city of nineveh which has more than 120000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left as well as many animals in verse 10 there we see that word cared for or you cared about you cared about the plants uh, that's the Hebrew word hoots, which you can, it can be translated literally to say, you had compassion on the plant, Jonah. Why can't I have compassion on this great city? That, that's literally how we can translate it. Um, so the, the word for compassion here in this context and this word in the Old Testament literally means to spare someone. If you're in a battle, I wanna spare you from what's about to happen to you, all right? So I don't know if this is helpful for you, but it was helpful for me if you saw Star Wars and The Force Awakens, right? Opening scene of the movie, you've got uh, the, the, the Empire comes into a little village. All these stormtroopers are in the village because there's some intel there that they need, and they're ordered to take out the entire village. But there's one stormtrooper, Finn, who eventually will defect to the rebellion, he had compassion on the village. He couldn't go through with the order because he wanted to spare the people from what was about to happen to them, right? So the order was take no pity, take no compassion. But this one guy had compassion. He wanted to spare them. And so God says to Jonah, you have compassion on the plant. You want to spare the plant, And I can't have compassion on or spare 120,000 men, women, and children, Jonah? Why does Jonah have this kind of compassion on a plant? Or is it really the plant that he has compassion for? Was it that the plant that he pitied over Or was it himself that he pitied? It was hot outside and the plant really made it more comfortable. But now the plant is gone. It's not providing anything for Jonah's need. So here's Jonah sitting in a shelter hoping God destroys the city as he pities himself, has compassion on himself because of the heat of the sun. See, Jonah really hated the Ninevites. And listen, the Ninevites were an evil and violent people. Nineveh was a great city in the Assyrian Empire, and if you read Assyrian history, you will read of terrorist acts that make ISIS look soft. One historian put it this way, that Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history we know. They were, these were evil, violent people. But Jonah had one fatal flaw. A flaw that I think if we're honest, we can find it in ourselves, in our own hearts, and that was this. Jonah had an anybody but them mentality. There were people who in Jonah's heart were worthy of his ministry, people who were worthy of his compassion, people who were worthy of God's mercy and his salvation, and there were people in Jonah's heart who were not. To Jonah, they were not worthy of God's mercy. They were not worthy of his ministry. They were not worthy of any compassion. They were scum. And see, I think the overall, I think Jonah overall, in his heart, was probably a faithful guy. He's probably a faithful prophet in Israel. You know, he probably lived a very religious and disciplined life. If you observe the way he lived his life, he probably seemed like a really good, really nice guy. Willing to do anything for God, willing to preach anything that God would call him to preach, probably to anyone that God would call him to preach to anybody but them. Because Jonah was disgusted by these people And he was sitting in his shelter of judgment with more compassion for himself because he was hot. And I believe that all of us have people in our lives that probably fit this category. People that we're disgusted by. People where when... God calls on us to have compassion on them. When, when God says, I want you to love them, I want at your own expense, I want you to go and care for them, that we might say, God, listen, I wanna follow you with my whole life. I love your word, I wanna read your word, I wanna study your word, I love church, I love serving there and being involved with the people in the church. God, I wanna do anything for you, but God, anybody but them, You know, people where it's just easier to sit in a shelter of judgment rather than engage with them with compassion. You know, maybe it's a neighbor who has not been friendly to you or doesn't fit the social norm of the neighborhood. Or it's a coworker who has been difficult towards you or has said things about you that were hurtful. Or maybe it's an old friend who betrayed you or a family member where there's all kinds of baggage. I don't know what it is for you. You fill in the blank. Who would you rather sit and see judge rather than have compassion on? Because look, that person where you say, God, anybody but them, is a person that God has enormous compassion for. This is a person that God wants to spare from judgment. And we see the substance of God's compassion in verse 11, where God says, But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people, listen to this, who cannot distinguish their right from their left? God is saying they're ignorant. They need to be told about me. They need to be taught my word. They need the gospel. I mean, could you imagine if we began to see the people that we despise the same way that God sees them? As people living in this world with no hope and no idea that there is a God of compassion who wants to lavish his grace upon them. But I'll... I wanna challenge us a bit more because I I don't think what stops us from having compassion on the people around us is as much disgust as it is indifference. You know, we can be so preoccupied with what we have going going on in life that we don't consider or notice the people around us much less have compassion on them. Or we fear engaging people with the gospel because we assume it's such a socially taboo thing to do. It's just easier to be indifferent to where they're at spiritually than engage them with, with compassion. And, and Jesus teaches us in that famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the kind of compassion that he wants us to have on our neighbors. I wanna, I wanna read that for us in Luke 10. So if you had your place in Luke 10, go there. Starting in verse 25, I'm gonna go Luke 10, 25 to 37. Listen to Jesus' teaching on this. It says, then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him, how how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, that expert in the law asked Jesus, and and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said this, and here's our parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to go, be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way a Levite, when he arrived at that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, well, the the one who showed mercy to him. Jesus told them, go and do the same. See, when Jesus is teaching on having compassion on our neighbors, he clearly tackles the anybody but them mentality. Um, See, Jesus was talking to an expert in the law here who was most likely a very devout Jew and and knew the Jewish law, And, and yet Jesus makes a Samaritan as the hero of the story, the one whose example we are to follow, Now, this is very provocative of Jesus because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was a lot of tension between these two groups. And so I I can imagine as Jesus was telling this parable and the expert in the law is taking it all in and when Jesus says that a Samaritan came and a Samaritan was the one who showed him mercy, I can imagine the expert in the law going, oh man, anybody but him, anybody but a Samaritan but the kind of compassion that Jesus calls us to is not one that knows any human boundary or prejudice. But we also see another excuse that Jesus tackles in this parable, and that is indifference. In this story, Jesus makes two very devout Jews, a priest and a Levite, as the ones who choose not to care for the man who had been beaten. We don't know their reasons. Maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe it was about to get dark outside it would be dangerous to be out there all alone. Uh, Maybe they were afraid to touch him if he was dead and, and they would have touched a dead corpse and they could have been ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. Whatever their reason was, they did not have compassion on this man Just like Jonah had more compassion on himself as he was sitting in his shelter of judgment, these two guys had more compassion on themselves and whatever they were doing as they sat in their shelter of excuses. But when the Samaritan comes upon this man, there's nothing else to do but care for him. It's like compassion flooded the system. Right? Whatever excuse he would have or reason not to care for him, that was gone. It didn't matter the ethnic tension between the two groups. It didn't matter to him if his buddies found out that he had helped out a Jew. He didn't care about that. It didn't matter the expense. It didn't matter the time. It didn't matter if the guy was a good guy, bad guy, poor guy, rich guy. Just compassion took over. And this is how Christ calls us to have compassion on our neighbor to set aside any sort of regard for ourselves and to love and serve others, look at this, at our own expense. And as a follower of Jesus Christ who has been called as an ambassador of Christ, we are not called just to care for our neighbor's physical needs, but we're called to do that and also seek to share the hope of the gospel, to make disciples of all nations to have compassion on the state of the people's souls around us. So maybe we don't struggle as much with an anybody but them type of mentality, but in our culture today, in the church, I think we definitely struggle with an anything but that mentality. God, I wanna surrender my my whole life to you. I I wanna know your word. I wanna live my life according to your word. I wanna serve and be involved in the church. I wanna do everything it means to be a a follower of Jesus. But God, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to purposefully seeking to share the good news of Jesus with my next door neighbors and my coworkers at work and the other people I run run into throughout the day, God, I'll do anything but that. And we don't even realize it, but we become spectators in the lives of our neighbors, sitting in a shelter of excuses and indifferent to their need for a Savior, having more compassion on our own needs, on our own schedule, than on our neighbors. I know this is a challenging sermon this morning but I really believe that we have become all too comfortable in our shelters in the church today. We have allowed it to be commonplace, acceptable, normal, to not even know the names of our neighbors, much less share the hope of the gospel with them. We've gotten to the place where the people in the church who actually do this on a regular place, regular basis are the, the abnormal ones. I think we've allowed Northern Virginia to disciple us more than God's word. I mean, why is it that we find it easier to share the gospel with people across the world in a third world context than it is the people 10 yards from us? And I want us to see that when we have an anybody-but-them mentality or an anything-but-that mentality in our hearts, when our Christian life is marked more by shelters of judgment or shelters of excuses, it's because of our heart's lack of compassion. I mean, if you are here and you are a follower of Christ, you sit here as a forever, forever forgiven child of God. You've been given an eternal hope that will never fade. I mean, think about this. It's hard to wrap our minds around this. When you've been in heaven 10 million years, you'll realize you're just getting started. You carry with you the promise in this life that God will work all things together, even if the situation you're in now is bad. He'll work all things together for your good. And you have all of that because of the incredible compassion of Christ. Not because you earned it, not because you created it, not because you deserved it or convinced God to give it to you, yeah, you were the man on the side of the road, beaten and half dead. That's you. That's where we fit into this story. And Christ came, had compassion on us, healed our wounds, and redeemed our lives at his own expense. I mean, when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross in our place, when he was suffering because he was enduring the punishment for the sin that, that we deserved, do you know what he said? You know what he cried out to God. And Luke chapter 23 verse 34 he said, "Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing." Man, that sounds like the compassion of God the Father in Jonah chapter 4 verse 11. There's 120,000 people down there. They don't know their right from their left. Jonah, why can't I have mercy on them and compassion on them? Or or Mark chapter six, verse 34, I love this. When Jesus went ashore, he saw this large crowd, and it says he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them. I mean, do you understand that God is not disgusted with you? Doesn't matter what happened this week. It doesn't matter the thoughts that you had this week. He's not disgusted with you. I mean, do you understand that? He's not indifferent towards you. He has compassion on you. And he's satisfied, not with a part of you. He wants all of you. I mean, you are who you are today because of divine compassion. And if you're here, and I just wanna say this, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not sure what you believe yet, I want you to know that this is what Christ has done for you. He gave his life for you, he has compassion for you. He he doesn't want you to clean up your life first or memorize a bunch of Bible verses first before you're able to come to him and receive that compassion. So so the forgiveness of your sins is is freely offered to you today if you'll place your faith in Jesus and make him Lord of your life. That's, That's available to you today. But to those of us who do follow Jesus, it's only when we understand the compassion that Christ has had on us, how that has changed us and changed our life when we'll begin to have true compassion on the people around us. Our problem when it comes to loving our neighbors is not time. It is not calendar or schedule. It's not busyness. It's not Northern Virginia culture. It's not that we're living in an increasingly post-Christian society. I think our problem is compassion. We lack compassion for our neighbors. So as I close, I I wanna challenge all of us to, to do three things to start building compassion in our lives, okay? Three things. So here's the first one, number one. Number one is be honest. Be honest. If you have an anybody but them or an anything but that mentality, name it. Own up to it. Be honest with your own heart that this is the part of the Christian life that you struggle with. Your sins are still forgiven. I mean, Jesus still has compassion on you. Remember what we talked about last week. The cross of Jesus Christ allows us to face our weaknesses without fear of condemnation or rejection. And so you have the freedom to be humble and honest about this in your life. It does not threaten your salvation. It will threaten your joy. It's only when you name it, when you confess this to others, that it can begin to be addressed in your life. And so l- let me be frank. I want to be frank with Grace Hill Church. I think Grace Hill Church struggles with an anything but that mentality. And I put myself in that category. Do you know how easy it is as a pastor to rationalize not sharing the gospel with people? Well, I stand up on a stage and do it every Sunday. All my coworkers better be Christians, right? I mean, so let's not be a church that, that looks good on the outside, but on the inside, we don't really evangelize our neighbors. Let's not go there. Number two is this, create a context for compassion to grow. Create a context for passion to grow. We can't just sit and wait for compassion to come into our hearts. Before we engage our neighbors. We need to reverse that process. We need to go engage our neighbors so we create a context for compassion to grow. And so so here's here's what I mean. This week, this afternoon, go knock on your neighbors, neighbor's door and learn their name. Or, or finally begin to engage the people around you in such a way that it seems like you're interested in a relationship, a friendship. Believe it or not, it's actually not weird. I think in our society today, people are craving friendship and everyone's waiting for the other person to initiate it. So you be the one to initiate, don't wait on them. Have compassion, like move towards them at your own expense. I mean, this week is Halloween. Uh, the one day where all your neighbors are gonna knock on your door and be walking around outside use that i'm tired of the general general big C church sitting in their shelters of judgment about halloween it's the one day everybody's out there like let's use that let's get out of that shelter and engage Right. Ask your neighbors questions. Learn about their life. Learn what they do. Here's the deal. If you're consistent and genuine and you really want to learn about them, they'll begin to trust you. And I promise, compassion will begin to grow. We need to create a context for compassion to grow in our hearts. And if we begin to position ourselves in such a way that that can happen when we can begin to learn about the the struggles our neighbors have or or ways in which we can serve them and care for them, then our compassion will grow and I I promise you that your desire for them to know Jesus will become overwhelming. And here's number three. Register for our Hospitality and Evangelism Conference. We're doing this in two weeks, Friday night, Saturday morning of November 9th and 10th, And this whole conference is designed to equip the church on how to take those relationships we have with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with family members, whoever it is, and and get it to a place where you can begin to share the gospel with people. And how do you actually share the gospel? We want to equip you and encourage you in that. And so sign up for this. I mean, if you're in that place where you're saying, listen, Alan, you hit the nail on the head, I struggle with anything but that. I do in the Christian life, I just struggle with it. Then please, like, cancel whatever you got going on and come to this conference, take this step, because we are gonna challenge you. A good buddy of mine is coming up uh, here, we're bringing him in to do the conference, he's a great teacher, and he, I know he's gonna challenge me on this, so sign up, it's totally free unless you need childcare. It'll literally take you less than 20 seconds to register, I promise you. We even put a QR code Right? In your bulletin. You just scan that thing and you can be registered in less than 30 seconds. So I, we really want as many people to register for this because we think it's going to be encouraging to our church. Grace Hill, our vision is to be a church where all people can find joy in Jesus. We believe, down to the very fiber of our being, that every one of God's commands are for your joy. And your joy in this life will be incomplete if you're satisfied with living the Christian life within anything but that mentality. I I truly believe the church in America has left so much joy on the table because we wanna touch this area. This is what we're called to do in Herndon and in Northern Virginia. We did not plant this church to create another option for Christians on Sunday morning. We planted this church to encourage, yes, Christians who come and gather with us and to bring the gospel to people who do not know Christ. And I know that becoming serious and radical about this lifestyle is nerve-wracking, especially in a culture that is less culturally Christian. And so let me do this. Let me close with some encouragement, and I'm going to be honest, tough love, by one of my favorite authors, Rosaria Butterfield. Read anything she writes. Just write that down, Rosaria Butterfield. Here's what she has to say, and then we'll close. She says, instead of feeling sidelined by the sucker punches of post-Christianity, Christians are called to practice radically ordinary hospitality to renew their resolve in Christ. Too many of us are sidelined by fears. We fear that people will hurt us, We fear that people will negatively influence our children. We fear that we do not even understand the language of this new world order, least of all its people. We long for days gone by. Our sentimentality makes us stupid. We need to snap ourselves out of this self-pitying reverie. The best days are ahead. Jesus advances from the front line. And I'll say amen to that. Let's pray. Father, this morning I know that we started to walk into a territory that makes some of us nervous. And Lord, I just pray that as a church, Lord, you would in, you would infuse us with an evangelistic zeal that is fueled by compassion. Lord, I pray we would never become a church that is known for being bold in how we preach Jesus, but we don't love well. No, Help us to be a church that loves our neighbors well, that cares for them, that wants to hear what they're struggling with, that wants to seek to care and show compassion at our own expense. Lord, help us to never have a reputation that we don't care for the people around us. We just want to get professions of Christ and fill the room, and we don't want that. Lord, help us to have a reputation of those people really love Jesus and they really love me. So Lord, for each of us individually in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, would you just fill our hearts with a compassion for the people around us? Would you help us to see through all the different filters we use to judge people or to identify people and help us to see an image bearer of God who needs to hear the hope of the gospel, someone that you love and have compassion for. So, Lord, grow us in this area as a church. And, Lord, we pray that as a result, many people would come to know the love of Christ.